Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jillian Murphy, a naturopath, speaker, educator, and coach, and this is Food Freedom Body Love, a podcast I put together to help you make peace with food, body image, and weight so you can kick your all-consuming, exhausting weight control food obsession habits and start living your best, healthiest life. This was an incredibly interesting session. In it, we talk a lot about preoccupation, preoccupation with food and preoccupation with body shape and size. We are pulling apart whether or not preoccupation is a problem when it only exists in our minds. And what I mean by that is, All of the external actions that typically come from this preoccupation, like excessive exercise or food restriction or a cycling of food restriction and binging, all of the action pieces have resolved. This woman has found a way to stop herself before she takes action. And yet the preoccupation continues. So we we talk about that, about whether whether or not it's just something left over from old eating issues or whether it's something that needs to be healed up even further. It takes us a little while to figure out what piece of this is the most problematic for the woman that I'm speaking with. And from there, what we begin to uncover is the tangling of worth and value and beauty and body for this individual. It's a big conversation. Um, any kind of conversation around worth and value is going to be fairly existential, but I think you're really going to enjoy it. And when we start to pull it together at the end, where we take a really big conversation and start to boil it down to where do we go from here? My stuff with food, body, it goes way back. Um, Some days I think, oh, this is not an issue for me anymore. I'm cured. Like, I'm better. Um, And then other days it is all that I can think about. Um, So I think for me, the way that this manifests today most currently is just like a preoccupation with weight. How does my body look in this? How, um, how much do I weigh? I don't weigh myself often at all. Um, how do my clothes fit? What did I eat today lately? And this might be like, be like a quarantine specific, but lately I've just at the end of the night, like it calms me down to be like, what did I eat today? Did I eat like nourishing foods? Did I eat fun foods? Did I give my body what I wanted? You know, just kind of like rolling through that and I just sometimes wonder like is this normal (laughs) to be so preoccupied with that I just feel like it's a um it's just a constant thought for me so that's kind of what's going on currently um throughout my history I definitely have had just just that same preoccupation what do I look like how does my body compare to other people um specifically like What do men think about my body? You know, not even in like a romantic or sexual way, even just like, you know, does my dad think I got fat? Does my husband's grandpa, when he said that I look different, did he mean I gained weight? You know, just like this, everything gets filtered through 
how do I look and what is my body shape today? And to me, that just, that just doesn't strike me as like, I've done so much work in other areas of my life where I want, where I have undone some of those filters and I've really progressed. Um, and this is one that I just haven't addressed much. Um, and I would like to just like what you say at the beginning of the podcast, I love just about like an, a pleasurable, relaxed approach to health. Like, yes, that's what I want. Just that, yes, it's okay to think about food and, and body and health, but I don't think about it from a relaxed standpoint at all. Right. So that's kind of a place where I'd like to, I'd like to grow. Um, and so other than just kind of that preoccupation with perception and alignment with like societal norms, I would say um, I've definitely like dabbled in different types of controlling my food behaviors. Um, is that, is that those, currently happening? Um, not so much for me. It's always been like extreme. It would be extreme restriction or uh, a purging thing, but that's not something no, that's, that's happening with me right now. No. Once in a while I'll, I'll get a thought of, you know, things feel really out of control in my life. I, I, I return to that place of like, well, I could, really hyper control what's going into my body right now. And I could hyper control, but that those are pretty fleeting. That's, and then it, that thought arrives and I kind of think like, Oh no, that's like, my, that's an old coping mechanism. I don't do that today. Today I'm going to take a bath or write in my journal or whatever. Um, but the, the preoccupation is like really the main issue. I would say that's and, most and it common. sounds like, right. And it sounds like the preoccupation is mostly around your body, like body checking, Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Um, body checking and and food, I would just say, you know, am I eating the right foods? Am I eating enough? Um, yeah, it's both, so, but I'd so, say more body. Right. So preoccupied, but not necessarily acting on the thoughts. You're just continually thinking about it and rolling it through your mind. And then you seem to be able to stop yourself before you go into restrictive action. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that correct? And yes. where, where is your relationship with exercise or movement at the moment? Um, I'm so glad you're asking me this. This is something that I never even really considered until I started like listening to podcasts that discuss this type of thing. Um, exercise for me in the past was only about managing weight, always 100%. Right. Um, in the past few years, I've started saying movement because to me that just carries such a positive connotation. I love that idea. Moving your body feels so good. You don't have to do it for a certain amount of time. Like there's not this like deliverable at the end, except to like enjoy, you know, I, I love that. Um, so I've shifted into kind of discussing it from that space. Um, and I move today to feel good, to feel good mentally, for me, it's, um, it's almost like more for my mental health. Physical is like the secondary piece. I'll be like, oh, I feel really great after this bike ride. Like I feel relaxed and my body feels good. But it's, I, I usually do it when I'm feeling um, like I have a mental signal that it's time to move more than a physical one. Mm-hmm. And when you think about sort of this preoccupation that you still have, what is the thing about it that's most bothersome for you? 
And, and what, so let, let me just add to that. What's most concerning or bothersome or problematic for you? And then what would you most like to change? Like, what would you like to see different? Mm-hmm. The part, the part of the preoccupation of what is, that's most bothersome to me is um, just how, how frequent it is. It just feels really freaking frequent and and I'm constantly just scanning, you know, like how does my arms, like how do my legs, like what is happening? And um, it sounds so like self-obsessive when I'm saying it out loud, but I just, I guess I'm not even realizing until we're discussing it how, um, like it's part of my everyday life. And so I would just like to like turn the volume down on that yeah, and have that less frequent just like I turned the volume down on the actual acting on it, you know, like that's still there sometimes, but I don't actually do it. And so I know I'm never going to be a hundred percent done with the work, but um, turning the volume down on the frequency of those thoughts. And then I, I think just like increasing my relaxation around like food, like eating flexibly, like sometimes I eat this and sometimes I eat that. Um, and what I put into my body for like fuel and for pleasure, I don't want it to be like going through that filter of like, well, do I feel like thin today? Do I feel fat today? Is this something that, you know, I can handle eating this food today? So just like being more intuitive, like giving my body what it needs. And it's so interesting because when this concept started to like bubble up in my reality and I said like, what's intuitive eating? What's movement? I like these words. My body wants a variety of foods. It doesn't like always want, you know, all the, you know, like junk food or play food or whatever. It wants a variety of foods. It often wants a vegetable or fruit. And so just like honoring that and growing in that I'm still just such a newbie and it's really mostly been gleaned from like articles and podcasts and conversations with them. Yeah. It sounds like you're just struggling a little bit still between being in your head versus being in your body and your head wanting to take over again. You know, okay. Mm -hmm. you're, You're mostly moved out of a control model. You're mostly in a trust model, but there's this little piece of your brain that's like me, but I just got to keep checking to make sure. I just have to keep Mm -hmm. the checks and balances. Somebody's got to be in control here, (laughs) right? Yeah. And I, I, this came to a um, kind of a realization the other day. I was having a conversation with my husband about something and we've gone through a lot of change. We just got married. We both started new jobs. Now we're both working from home. It's a lot. And um, I said something to him like, well, the conversation was in regard to our, you know, like, why aren't we talking about this? Or like, are we okay? And I said, is it because I've gained weight? And he just looked at me and he was like, what? He's like, I think you might be overanalyzing this. But like, for those words to come out of my mouth, that was like a little checkpoint for me to be like, wow, in my head, if something is awry in my relationship or in my reality, one of my first thoughts is because my body changed. Right. So worth and value is still very much tied up with body and where your body's at. Oh, yes. And do you remember a time when this wasn't true? I remember being a little girl. I grew up um, 
you know, on an island and we lived in bathing suits and I was just, I never, I didn't care. It wasn't a thought. Um, I felt free. I felt alive. I keep little pictures of myself from those ages around my house just to remind me like there was a time where you didn't think about, you know, be so you weren't so self-conscious. You just were, you were free, you were happy. And so like, I think being young, being a little kid, just like wild and free and not considering how I looked all the time. I was just like in the moment and playful. That is like the goal to me. That is just the golden time in my mind. Um, and I do remember specific times when I started to become aware of that, when someone would comment on, on a, my body. Or I remember going bathing suit shopping with a friend of mine who is just one of that small percentage that's just felt like a supermodel. And I just remember being like, I hate shopping with you. And she was like, her feelings were hurt. She was like, why? And that was, that's me. That's my stuff. And I remember being like 12 and being like, this is like, this is my problem, but I'm taking it out on her. And do you, so how old would you have been? Like when you remember those like free moments, how old would Mm -hmm. you have been there? And do you remember any specific moments when things shifted? Like when that mindset of like, oh, you are different from me. You are measuring up better than I am and I don't like it. So you're expressing that at 12, (laughs) but there must've been, there were, there were things that happened in between free, wild, in the moment, and this very clear (laughs) awareness of how far away from the cultural I- ideal you are versus the person mm-hmm. next to you, right? Do you, do you remember that? Yeah. If you feel like sharing it. Um, that, that moment in the dressing room is like when I first remember expressing it, that, that was like a strong, I, re- I think about that frequently. Um, so for me, I think that was like the first time that it, I acknowledged that what happened before the only thing I can think of is that like my media consumption changed from my mom what my mom picked for me and I was homeschooled and active in Girl Scouts and 4-H and church and all these this beautiful community of artists in um in my hometown and so it changed from that and like a very um edited protected media diet to reading 17 and watching sneaking MTV and watching Dawson's Creek and all the shows she was like, no, this is like mature for you. And I was just fascinated by all of them. And I wanted to be a teenager and a grown up. And so the only thing I can think that actually changed besides like the actual puberty process was my media diet. And to this day, I think I'm just, I studied media in college. It's, it's a love of mine, um, but I'm still deeply impacted and and have to be very careful of like what I put in my mind. I think this is such an interesting thing because I think that um, obviously our parents have a big effect on how we feel about our bodies, but I do think it's really interesting. I often say I never blame moms because there are just as many people that I work with who, whose moms had major eating issues that ended up with eating issues as there are people whose parents had no eating issues and they ended up with mm-hmm. eating issues. And um, so much of it is this, this fact that diet culture is like the air that we breathe. It's oxygen all around us, right? And so whether 
it's our parents that are sharing it or it's our friends or it's the media. It's sort of everywhere. Like even to this day, I, you know, we're in this sort of social distancing situation where we're watching more movies throughout the week. And I'm just like acutely aware of every movie that we put on, there is something fat phobic in it. Mm-hmm. And trying to point that out and trying to like not make too big of a deal out of it, but also pointing it out to my young daughters and being like, do you see what they're doing here? Um, is that true? Is it true that the fat person is always the bad one or the joke or the, you know, but especially, and I don't know exactly how old you are, but especially through like the eighties, the nineties, it was just really, Mm -hmm. it's still really big, but it was Mm -hmm. very major. And, um, the messaging in things like teen magazines at the time, it was just Mm -hmm. so thin is best diet culture, fat phobic heavy. And, and I, you know, I'm just confirming what you're saying, but it just, to me, it is this interesting thing because, you know, there's no reason to just blame the parents because clearly the culture is so strong that it can do it just as well as a parent or a, an aunt or a well-intentioned but misinformed grandparent, right? It's literally, oh, yeah. it's literally the air we breathe. And do you remember, are there any like images or like, like media images or movie clips or is there anything that stands out to you as something that was like, oh, something that just really stuck with you that was about appearance and popularity or worth or happiness or success or desirability. You know, you've mentioned male gaze. Mm-hmm. Um, I would say specifically, so two things in, um, in the, in my house growing up, it was such a happy home and so much love. Um, but there were clear messages about food. I went to, um, meetings with my mom, who is part of a 12-step program related to food. I not participating, just kind of like listening. My mom was very open about um, her struggles with what she would say is like compulsive overeating, weight, health. There was always what my dad called like bird food in our house, rabbit food in our house. There was never like snacks and things like that. So it was, that was definitely from like the place of health. So like those images stick out to me, like my mom being at meetings and, you know, there being like literally just seeds in our cabinet and like not being like, I want like cheetahs <laughs> and having to go to my friend's house to get those. And I never was, you know, my mom never commented like on, on my body size being, you know, too big, but she is still something that's a big part part of her life. Um, so that image just of like in my home and then on the media, I would say like, as soon as you said desirability and things like that to me, like I grew up in the late eighties, early nineties, late nineties. And I'm thinking about like the pop princess movement, Brittany, Christina, like those were the teen Queens, the like midriffs were huge. Right. So like, that was the style. So having, you know, a really tan toned body, I think is like what I saw so much in the media. Um, and then and media, like, scrutiny, media scrutiny as they changed as well. Oh, constant to this day, still 
And of course, uh, yeah, you're too skinny, you're too fat, you're this, you're that. And like, you're only really good when you're like 19. Yeah, (laughs) that was the message that I got. And I wasn't 19. And 19 was actually my worst year ever. But you know, that message was that there's this like select window of desirability and being okay and value and worth. And once you pass it, like you have to like, work your ass off or your mentally to like measure up. I think those were real messages that I ingested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it is interesting to me to hear what happened at home, because one of the things that you're saying, you know, I would love to have this pleasurable, flexible relationship with food. But what's really interesting is what you're talking about, this process that your mom was in, um, is a model that's becoming ever so slightly outdated at the moment when it comes to food. And one of the things is that that 12 step process around food, because food isn't something we can just cut out, right? There are other, there are other, um, addictions that for some people that really is very effective in terms of, um, not for everyone, but for some people are really effective in terms of managing addiction. Um, but when it comes to food, that kind of a process is, effective in that for some people it would stop the overeating but it never stops the preoccupation because it's right the issue that most people are dealing with when it comes to food is a control issue and the 12-step program is it's like a control fix for a control issue and with food we have to welcome it into our life at some point and so um even people who would use that method to say stop with sugar or stop with whatever, they may actually stop the physical act, but the mental act never stops. The preoccupation never stops because they haven't actually made peace with this thing. It's just been cut out, right? And the process or the action of continuing to keep it cut out requires constant vigilance, and thought. Mm-hmm. And so it's really interesting that what you're desiring is to go that one step further. But the problem is that you never got to see it modeled as a child, which most people haven't. But for you, it's like really obvious, right? Like this, it's very much like a, you know, constant vigilance, constant preoccupation was the tool. That was the best Mm -hmm. tool of the moment to manage the feelings. And so it's like, you're in a place now um, where we're offering up a new tool that doesn't just stop the physical gorging reactivity, overdoing Mm -hmm. it with food, but offers up the possibility of dealing with the mental, emotional, gorging obsessiveness reactivity when it comes to food and body. Um, And then I think for you, it's just like, oh, it's never been modeled. Like that's never been a possibility. And again, for most people, that's also true. Very few people have had uh, a full trust model Mm -hmm. modeled for them. Right? Right. So what does that bring up for you when I say that? Um, I think I definitely resonate with the whole physical and um, or I'm sorry, emotional and mental gorging. Like, cause I've never been, it's never been something where I felt like I've 
not felt out of control with food much Mm. in my Mm. life where I just like, I have cravings and things like that. And even when I was engaging in like more restrictive, like just like by the book disordered eating, you know, I had obsession around food, but that was really a like for me, it's not ever been such a big physical thing. I've never been, I've always been, you know, at a fairly stable weight. It's not like I've, I haven't experienced like, the physical piece of like big losses and gains that I've seen family or friends go through. Um, So I always was like, Oh, I can't have feelings about this because like, I don't belong to this club and yet I have big feelings about it. And I think what you said is correct that like, for me, it wasn't ever about like physically gorging and things like that. It was, it's like these mental um, benders. <laughs> yeah. And it's one of the, it's one of the reasons that we're really pushing to stop using weight as a measure of distorted or disordered eating, because it's mm-hmm. such a bad way of classifying or not classifying people as having an issue or not. And it makes people yeah. believe that, I mean, occasionally it makes people believe that they have a problem when they don't. So people who are at high right. weights who are actually quite stable and, and, normal around, you know, I'm using quotation marks, normal around food are led to believe that they've got major eating issues because of the body size that they're in. And that for other people who are in smaller sizes, there's this, this feeling that like, Oh, I, I can't express feeling badly or having a problem with this because it's all internal and it's not necessarily showing on the outside. So when you think about letting go, like when you think about not reviewing your food at the end of the day or not checking your body or, you know, just sort of letting go. If you could just all of a sudden stop doing that, which you could, (laughs) what do you worry? (laughs) What do you worry will happen? Like what's the fear that's there? Um, the first fear that comes up is I won't feel good. Um, I, I'm someone who has historically gone overboard with other things that make me feel good. Um, I'm very open to talk about it. I'm eight years sober from, you know, any mood altering substances. And so for me, like maintaining that sense of like peace, serenity, being comfortable in my own skin, feeling comfortable mentally, spiritually, emotionally is like, is so important to me because that is how like the easiest way I can describe it is that I drink and use substances to escape my reality. And today in recovery, I have a reality I don't want to escape from. And so I don't need those because I like my life today. I like who I am. I love who I am. And I'm, I'm so proud to say it because it's just been like, Oh my God, what a long project. But, um, so for me, when it comes to like the food and body checking, I, I feel like that's just like a comforting thing that I do. And if I, if I stop, um, I might lose a piece of my, like, I don't know, my peace or my serenity, but it's probably just control. <laughs> well, this is an interesting conundrum because Initially, it was like, I want to let go of this constant, frequent checking. Mm -hmm. 
So this is like one of those moments of starting to different. It's an uncomfortable question for me to ask and something that might, you might have to sit with. But to me, it sounds like the, the frequency and the preoccupation with food might be another form of distracting. Possibly. And there's also the possibility that it's just a coping mechanism that is actually working for you that you enjoy. <laughs> and so there's, and, and there's also the possibility that it's a little bit of both, that it's a little bit of both of those things. And that um, because you've dealt with other substance abuse issues or other addiction issues, I'm not sure how exactly you would qualify that or you, or how you would describe it, that it's something that, that maintains that feeling of like safety. But I would also, I would just put it out there that continually checking bodies and continually reassessing, assessing, checking on food can also be an addictive behavior a distracting, addictive behavior. And it's like addictive light. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> because it's not necessarily fully blowing up your life, but it can really, it can really distract. It can really take mm -hmm. up a lot of brain space and can affect what you could actually be getting done in the course of a day. Like distracting from like unpleasant realities through the day Possibly, or stress or anything or like feelings. that. Okay. You know, I can't, I think you said, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes when life gets increasingly chaotic, these feelings get stronger. So it's a way to, it's a way to manage discomfort or a feeling of chaos. Yes. I think, I think for me too, like what's resonating the most about kind of that summation is that. I think the, the reviewing of the food is probably that just sort of is like a, a habit and that doesn't feel super concerning to me. Um, it's just there. Like, I don't love that I do that, but it's just kind of there. Um, the piece that's like really sticking with me is that the constant checking, the self-worth and the value. Like, the and, and that's what, yeah. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. And that feels... No, no, no. Your, I think your intuition is correct on this because the food piece is like, yeah, that's just kind of like this side thing. But um, it's the, the part that like causes me shame and anxiety is the, the body checking. And I'm not familiar with that term, but I'm thinking that's just like, it's like checking it's like, with, yeah, or like, or like looking at your sides or looking at your stomach or how does it, how does it yeah. look in? It's just like, or like pinching things or like, grasping things or, you know, yeah. it's, it's a term that we use um, sometimes in disordered eating for just constantly assessing the body in ways other than weighing. Constant. And, and I would say too, like this is so, so one of the things that I often say is that part of this work that I do is about helping people identify the choices they're making when it comes to food and weight and body and health and understand the cost benefit of those choices. And so sometimes like there are moments where 
um, even after I've fully worked with someone where if, if they go into an extreme period of stress in their life or something pops up, that's really hard, they'll fall back on some old coping mechanisms of tightening up their food or controlling things. The difference is that they know what they're doing and they know what the potential consequences and they know that if they start reactively eating or if they're rebelling against it, why they're doing it. And so instead of blaming themselves, they understand what the real problem is. The real problem is trying to control things in a way that's mm-hmm. unnatural for them. Um, but being able to make choices about what we do and, and the coping mechanisms that we use does involve also understanding when something, when the cost benefit is no longer good for us, right? So when, when um, like when you say that that came out of you in the relationship conversation, it's like, whoa, this is affecting, you know, the, the buying into this on some level isn't, isn't necessarily just coping. It's also a deep expression of your sense of worth and lovability. And so that is worth pulling apart, right? And so I guess what I'm saying is that there can be pieces of this that we could decide, okay, this isn't really affecting me so much, like with the food checking. It's kind of mild. Mm -hmm. I would also suggest that that would probably settle down even more when the body stuff settles down. Like the only reason we care about food or try to control food or check food or, or manipulate our food is when we think our bodies aren't good enough. Like they're just the tool that we've been given to take control of a body that we think is not good enough. So when we start to turn the volume down on body, it's really interesting to see some of the food stuff kind of dissipate or start to start to fade a little. Yeah, that makes sense. So So where we're left is that we have this body preoccupation deeply tied to worth and how do we start to untangle those two things? Like that's the question of the hour, you know, how do we, it's the question of everyone's hour and it's a tough, it's a tough one because worth is so intangible and it's like what you're expressing is that you have a deep belief, as most of us do, as many of us do, that worth has to be earned, that we earn it in some way, shape, or form, whether it's being the smartest person in the room or the life of the party or the prettiest or what, there's some external, the the richest, you know, the most successful, there's some external thing that we tend to have tied to worth. So worth has to be earned. And the problem is that worth is never earned. Like we can't actually earn it. So we find ourselves on a hamster wheel trying to get something that we can't get. And the hardest thing about it is that that storyline tends to get ingrained in us when we're very, very young. And so it's a deeply immature kind of stunted belief system Mm -hmm. because it probably solidified into your brain when you were like, I mean, for some people it's like four for you, it sounds like it was maybe eight or nine, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. where it went from like, I just am, I am worthwhile because I was born and I don't have Mm -hmm. to think about it and I don't have to try and earn it or measure up to anyone or, you know, amongst women, one of the most damaging parts of the storyline is not even that you have to look a certain way to be worthwhile, but that there's a finite 
amount of love to go around a finite amount of desirability. Like there's like, it's like a pizza and there's only so many slices. And so not only do you have to be thin or beautiful, but you need to be thinner and more beautifuler than the other women around you. Right. It hits us us against other women. And then as we become more aware and we're, you know, we grow up and we start to understand feminism and whatever, it's extra painful because like, we know we shouldn't feel like that. <laughs> and it's like, I love women. Yeah. All, you know, real women love all other women, real women support women. <laughs> Meanwhile, your entire life, you've been pitted against other women for male gaze, for success, for money, for belonging, for happiness, for health, literally. And so there's this compare comparison that's always happening. Like if this is the cultural norm, you know, how many degrees away from that am I? And am I, am I fewer degrees away from the women around me? You know, like how, like, and, and that's how we think that we stay safe, but really we're like Zizivus. So what are, you know, do you know that Greek mytho- like mythology where he's just like pushing the rock, the boulder up the mountain and it never ends. It like never ends. And Naomi Wolf writes about this, you know, like the woman, the woman who wins is the woman who like steps out of the game. Like the woman who wins is the woman who like takes the boulder and sets it down and is like, this is just me. This is who I am. And the hardest thing, like I said, in all of this is A, to figure out who we are because we've been fed for so long who we should be and what we should be. Like, you know, often when I put this out there to women, like, um, who are you if thin isn't one of your most defining features or fit or whatever, you know, X, Y, Z. And it's just like, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, what does that pull up for you? This idea of like, oh, you can't earn your worth. You're just worthwhile because you were born and because you exist and because you're a human being that's alive in the world and you know, you're made of stardust and you breathe. That's it. You're worthwhile. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I really relate to that, that piece about if, if, that, if that is factored out, what do I have? to Mm -hmm. offer and who am I that's big um and it's so relevant just right now with being at home and all these (laughs) meetings on camera and everything is just like right there um but also a certain level of productivity is stripped away a certain level of like all of the actions that we engage in every day to prove our productivity and worth and value and, and definition of like you as a human, like Jill mm-hmm. as, as an ego and a personality. Like there are so many of those things that are currently stripped away or are more difficult to engage in that makes us start to face this like, well, who am I if all of these external things are stripped away? Yeah, that's, that's so true, especially in my work. I'm a teacher and like my magic is with kids. Like that's what I'm highly, you know, in tune to how they're feeling and usually pretty good at giving them what they need. And I just love teenagers 
so much, the brattier, the more I love them for some reason. And I feel like, yeah, being like teaching online right now, I feel like my magic is gone. Like all I do is grade. I'm like, this is the worst part. So it's happened with work. Um, and in my family, I'm the oldest and I'm a great sister and a great auntie. And I don't, I'm not getting to do those things right now. So like, that's a really interesting point that you bring up. Like so many of my like performative things that I like about myself are like not available right now. So what, what is just existing here that I like about myself? That's not part of the performance, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't think I answered your question, but that's That's okay. There's not, there's not a straightforward answer and there's generally not an answer that just pops up in a one hour conversation, but there are some like exploratory things that we can start to do, which starts to unravel this a little bit. So, and, and again, the goal is, to start to untangle it's like right now your worth is this like really tangled up necklace and there's all these things in there right there's like there's your personality and what makes you feel special and important and um you know weight and maybe health or desirability or beauty is in there tangled up. And it's like, we need to just, it looks like it's untangleable. It's all tangled up. And it's like, we just need to find the corner. We need to start to find those little pieces that start to just like loosen everything up. You know, it feels like, oh, it's, I'm never going to be get it, be able to get it untangled. It seems like so unclear and vague. And yet we just have to start playing around with like pulling gently at the edges until we tug on something that starts to unravel and it, and it's vague mm-hmm. because it's, it's, that's the work is vague. Right. Yeah. Um, but I think that getting experimental and curious with what just brings you joy. So I th- you talked about it a little bit already, that idea of like moving, not for the metric of success, or not for the outcome, but for the actual mm-hmm. process. Like, what are the things that bring joy in the process, right? So, and, and just working to spend more time in those spaces. The other thing that can be really helpful is a body image inventory that um, I, I haven't I haven't published the podcast yet, but it's coming up. But a body image inventory is more specific to this one area of worth and value and and the story that we're telling about our body. And it's really just you know I borrowed it from from Virgie Tovar. It's it's an exercise from her, but it's essentially just moving through the day, doing things that you love and living your life the way you want to live it. And then just becoming very aware of the moments when you feel good in your body and what's happening in those moments or in the moments just before. And then becoming very aware of when you feel bad in your body and what's happening in the moments just before and when it's happening and starting to work to reduce or limit the things that make you feel bad in your body and spend more time in the things that are making you feel good in your body. And so that could be related to the media that you're consuming or the people that you're hanging around with. And again, I'm not suggesting that we have to cut people out of our lives, but sometimes we need to take a break as we sort through this body and worth. Um, 
but the bigger piece. Yeah. And so that's a really good inventory. But then, like I said, I think that the deepest work here is starting to explore who we are, what brings us happiness and joy when there's no specific outcome. So another area, and I'm going to bring it up because you mentioned male gaze, like for most women, we have never asked ourselves the question or considered what's beautiful or sexy or desirable to us. We only know what that is with respect to male gaze. Mm. So we only know what's fashionable based on what images of fashion have been fed to us. We only know what's beautiful based on the images of beauty that have been fed to us. And so the first thing is to start increasing the images of desirability and beauty and fashion that you're taking in. So that means actively working to like expand the media that you absorb so that there's different representations of sexuality and gender and um, race and ability and just starting to like get more flexible in where and how you find and see beauty and worth in the world. Like that is it's an exercise in flexibility. We get rigid. We've gotten rigid because we've been fed one specific view of what beauty and desirability is, right? And so working to get more flexible, in increasing the, the beauty that we can find in humanity and the value and the worth that we can find in people regardless of how they look is a really good first step. When we begin to see it in others, we start to be able to find it in ourselves as well. So that's just one area though, right? Because, and it's, what's really interesting about this work is that when we are defining our worth, and again, this is, this is challenging because it's the pervasive cultural view of worth, right? Is that we're worthwhile based on external measures. And so what will happen is sometimes women will do this work and if they're not aware of what they're doing, then they stop obsessing about how their body looks and body checking. And they just start obsessing about work <laughs> and how they're being valued at work. And then they stop that. And it's like, okay, well, how good of a partner am I? You know, how, how good am I at this? How, you know, it just, it can shift. It can jump from one thing to the next. It's part of that. Like it's part of that addictive archetype, right? Of like, Happiness comes from something outside of myself. My worth comes from something outside of myself. My value comes from something else. That's the addiction archetype is continually looking outward for what's going to make us feel happy and joyful and worthwhile. And the flip of this is starting to look inside. And it's just such a difficult thing to describe. And the only... One of the stories that I often tell about this in myself, and I'm con continually working on this, right? Like this is like the work of lifetime. But when I first started doing this work, um, I hate biking. And I think only because I only ever biked as like spin classes or like this hardcore exercise training. And I always hated it. And so I just thought that I hated bikes. But um, when I first started doing this work, my husband bought me this like cream colored Dutch I call it like a lady bike, like one of those, like you're sitting upright, like you're in Europe, you know, with a basket, <laughs> yeah. you know, and, um, 
And it was just funny because I hate bikes. You know, I had a, I had a really expensive mountain bike that I bought when I was exercising like crazy and I gave it to my dad. I was like, you can have this. I hate biking. And I just got on this bike and I would just bike downtown again. I wasn't trying to burn calories. It wasn't part of the exercise regime because I'd given that up and I was trying to move differently. It was literally just like, oh, well, bike downtown to grab X, Y, Z. It's short, it's quick. And the only way that I can explain it is just this bubbling of joy that would come up when I would do it. And again, it was just the process of doing it. It was, the pr it was like, oh... To me, that like bubbling is that feeling of being and worth and value. It just comes from existing and getting to be in the world. And we're not going to have that feeling every single moment of every single day. But if we just get to experience these bright moments, if we get to experience these like moments of it, then we very slowly, we start untangling that necklace, right? Like we start loosening this grip on beauty being the only thing that makes us worthwhile or valuable in the world or thinness or whatever other measure of femininity has been given to us at some point in our lives, you know? Yes, totally. I love that. I know what that bubbling feels like. It's like a floating thing for me. So yeah. Yeah. And it typically comes when we're doing something where we're not trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Not always, but most of the time I find it comes in its most pure form mm -hmm. when there's just a state of present being. There's playfulness. There's fun. You're, it's pleasurable. It's enjoyable. Mm -hmm. And yeah. And, and anyway, I'll, I'll leave it at that because there's a lot more in it. So I think that like, this is a really intangible kind of like high level conversation. And so it's like, I always like to make sure that we always end with something that feels more actionable and more tangible. So I would say that I think the body image inventory is going to be something that's really helpful. And then in addition to that, it's this experimenting with what makes you feel happy, successful, beautiful, desirable, accomplished from inside of you, not outside. And that's just, that's an ex, that's an exploration. That's an exploration of like, you know, when you start to keep track of moments where these bad body things pop up, is there a way to challenge those things, confront them, experiment with doing the opposite? Mm -hmm. If you always feel like you need to dress a certain way to be desirable, can you try something else? Can you ask the question, does this actually feel desirable to me or, no, or does it not? <laughs> right. I, I keep thinking the word like performative, performative is just like what's in my mind as you're saying all that. Because so much of that, and I've begun so many of these things and it's like the best thing ever to discover like, wait, no, what do I like? And what am I attracted to? And what are some things that I want to explore? Like, to me, that's just like the thrill of getting a year older every year. Like, I love my birthday. I'm like, Ooh, what amazing things am I going to discover about myself and life this year? 
And so for me, like I'm, I'm on board with things like that because they work, the work, they work. I, you become, you become, you exist, you start um, being more than doing. And so I think my part of my issue is that, yeah, I'm always trying to like arrive and like stay there, you know? <laughs> yeah. Hence yeah. all the hamster wheeling. Um, but I love that idea of like increasing, like paying attention. One of those times that that just sort of bubbles up naturally and just doing that more. And the times that it feels really far away and scary, doing those things less or being around those people less. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I think performative is such a good word. Like what's performative versus what's expressive of just who you are, right? Expressive. I love that. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know. I feel like there's something else that was on the tip of my tongue and I'm not sure. So why don't I just throw it back to you for a second? Like, does this, is this landing, does this feel like something that's going to be helpful in terms of like the preoccupation with your body? Yes. And yes. And yes, because I feel like landing on that early on and just saying like, that's the thing that's most distracting to me right now. I don't feel, I don't feel good when I'm having those types of thoughts, not only because it doesn't feel good to like be judging yourself, but like also what you said, like I'm a feminist, like I appreciate the female body. Like I love diversity and change. I shouldn't be having these thoughts about my Self, you know, so there's like that two step where it doesn't feel good to be the judged one. And then it also doesn't feel good to notice that you're doing something. The judging. Yeah. The judging. Yeah. yeah. Um, so that was like, that's really key for me. Um, so then going from that space and saying, um, like, those things don't make me feel good. And when I'm doing that, I'm usually in a place where I don't, I don't feel good about something. I don't feel good about a certain situation in my life. And so increasing those, well, what do I like to do? And what does just bring me unadulterated joy? And I I know what those things are. And I've discovered several of them. And I'm just now discovering more. Um, And yeah, I think this is a, this is a really good, um, I feel like you just set me on this little tree lined Avenue and you're like, go explore. Yeah. And it brings to mind two more things just that I wanted to say before we wrap up. So one that this is very much like a sensual experience. And what I mean by that is it's like, we need to be in our bodies feeling things. It's one of the reasons like I started dancing um, through this process for me of spending more time in my body because there's something about it that's very much like your brain has to be in it and your body has to like everything has to be kind of preoccupied while you're doing it and so mm-hmm. I would spend less and less time in my thoughts about my body and more and more time in my body and experiencing my body and learning to move my body and so that for me was an activity that really helped with this process eating can do that too, right? Like, like really an exercise can be like, sometimes I'll give this to women, like what you need to do, your homework is to eat the most pleasurable thing every time you eat for the next two weeks. And it's interesting because sometimes people interpret that as like the junkiest thing, but you've already identified when we're working from a model of trust, we understand that sometimes the most pleasurable thing is a piece of chocolate cake. And sometimes the most pleasurable thing is a bowl of soup. And sometimes the most pleasurable thing is a salad with a piece of bread. Like 
the most pleasurable thing when we're really not in judgment or in thought changes. And so movement can be this avenue into the central experience of being in your body versus in your thoughts about your body. Um, eating can be, I mean, there's so many things that can be being loving or doing things for other people or for yourself. There are just like these different things that can, that can cause this bubbling. Um, so, so just thinking about this as like a present moment, sort of like experience of trying to get into your body and getting that bubbling feeling versus in your mind about what you think would cause the bubbling feeling. They're two different mm-hmm. things, right? <laughs> yeah. And then the second thing is Hirschman and Munter wrote this great book, When Women Stop Hating Their Bodies. And one of the things that they really clearly lay out in that book is that bad body thoughts are never about our bodies. And so just having that awareness that like, if bad body thoughts are popping up or preoccupied body thoughts are popping up, as soon as you have the awareness that it's never about your body ever, it is always about a story that you're telling. Then you start to be able to just ask the question or get curious with like, what is this? If I wasn't obsessing about my body right now, what would I be obsessing about? What would I be worried about? What would I be thinking about? And um, that would be another piece of homework that I would just add on. That sounds good. Thank you so much. You're so welcome. your insight and I'm feeling that excited apprehension to, to do some exploring and digging. That's good. Uh, that means we're that, pressing yes. a boundary. We're pressing an edge a little bit. Yes. There are three major things that I took away from that episode that stood out to me in speaking with this person. Um, The first is that big, huge question at the very end, which is, if I wasn't preoccupied with my body, what would I be preoccupied with? What would I be worried about or thinking about? That's a question that comes from Hirschman and Munter, and it is so powerful when we find ourselves locked up in recurrent non-stop obsessive thoughts about our food choices or our body. It's never about our body. It is always about the story that we're telling about ourselves and what our bodies are saying about us and what they mean. Which takes me to my second thing, which is that typically it's all rolled up into the belief that our worth and value is external that it is always measured by how productive we are, how beautiful we are, how thin we are, how good we are. And that the the deepest level, the biggest, deepest level of all of this work, whatever it is, is beginning to reclaim our worth simply because we are and because we exist and how tough that is and what a big job, what a big exploratory process that is when we've been fed what worth and value are our whole lives to rediscover it and redefine it for ourselves and to take the power back is a very big deal. And lastly, I used an analogy about a a chain as a tangled necklace in this episode. And I realized in listening back to the episode that that's an analogy that I heard Glennon Doyle Melton use in a podcast that I listened to recently. And so I just wanted to make sure that I mentioned that, um, that just didn't come out of my brain in the moment. That's a little Glennon Doyle special. So kudos to her. 
Uh, thanks as always for listening in. And if you're liking the show, if you're loving it, please share it with everyone, you know, rate and review it on iTunes. It really helps me to keep making these. 